Today on the Cineos Health Podcast, we have the first of a two-part episode. We'll be talking about the Health Trend 10 2019 report. This time, we're focusing on the commercial side of the business. I'll be joined by Brian DiStefano and Leah Householder. My name is Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. Brian and Leah are both from our commercial group here at Cineos Health. Health Trend 10, Commercial 2019, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Brian DiStefano, Leah Householder, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, thanks, Jeff. I should say, welcome back, Leah. Remind us of what we talked about last time, Leah. Last time we talked all about our innovation practice and some of the exciting things that were changing and consumer expectations and the ways that healthcare companies are connecting with them differently today. Brian and Leah, you both work with the commercial group here at Cineos Health, and we're talking today about the Health Trend 10 for 2019. We'll be talking about the things that we expect to be changing or to be very different about 2019 for the commercial side of the pharmaceutical business. Let me understand. We talked beforehand about a couple of things that we think are going to be big drivers. One of them that came up was that healthcare professionals are rewired. They're different from what we talked about before. What do we mean by that? One of the most important aspects of that trend is actually the mental health of healthcare providers. It's something that's coming into a very sharp focus across our industry as we come into 2019. The numbers are surprising. 42% of doctors report being burnt out and 15% say that they're depressed. These doctors report that they're overwhelmed by the stress of the job, the constant influx of information, and the inherent administrative tasks. Now, I think we knew that that was becoming a problem in the healthcare profession, but new data is pointing to how it's actually impacting patients. Doctors who report those levels of burnout have two times the risk of portraying low professionalism, two times the odds of involvement in patient safety incidents, and the same two times increase in low patient reported satisfaction. So what is absolutely an impact on people in a profession, it's also an impact that leads to poor quality of care. Brian, when we deal with healthcare professionals and they're having essentially, I don't want to say they're going through a midlife crisis, but a little bit of a mental health crisis, it sounds like where they're depressed or they're certainly burnt out. How does this change how we approach them from a commercial perspective? Do we do something differently or do we approach the market differently from how we used to approach the healthcare professionals? You know, that's a great question. You know, we do need to do things differently. Have we adapted as quickly as we need to? No, we haven't. But I think there's a more acute awareness about the pressures that are on the healthcare providers. You know, there's this balance between making sure that the providers are providing a quality experience for the patient and that they have the right outcomes. There are pressures on them, as Lee had pointed out, both administratively, medical records-wise, quality, patient satisfaction-type surveys that are going out there. And our promotion still focuses primarily on this is the product, this is how it works, these are the adverse events you need to watch for, these are the ways your patients get access. And really, our sales force and the other touch points that we have with the healthcare providers need to have a greater understanding and a greater empathy for what's going on in the physician's world around them. What are the pressures they have? What are they being measured upon? What is it that is important in their environment and with their stakeholders that are driving them to move forward with healthcare and how they make decisions? With that in mind, the way we approach them and the way that we say message them clinically, the message that we have or the outcomes around that, it has to really be tied into how does it impact them? How does it impact their patient? How does it impact healthcare in general? So it is a different approach. We understand it. 
as an industry. We know things have to change. We just need to accelerate that because everything around us is accelerating. Brian, I think those are great points. Two specific things stood out to me. One was just the amount of content that's coming at these doctors. I saw the most interesting statistic the other day that said that about 11 million bits of data per second are coming at us. How many do you think our brains are able to process? It's nowhere close to 11 million. It's 50. So that's what our doctors are up against. This medical information is coming at them in an endless and very rapid stream. One of the places where I've seen great innovation is finding ways to make taking in that information easier for doctors. For example, I recently saw a project where we had taken very long-form medical content and created these short audio snippets with the original author so that doctors could quickly move through the very interesting research that would take a very long time to read. The other element you mentioned that I wanted to connect on was What are physicians and hospital networks responsible for today? What are those metrics that they're being analyzed against? And one thing we're paying a lot of attention coming into 2019 to is MACRA. As that silent revolution in payment reform becomes very, very real for hospitals and large providers, they're really refocusing their strategy on reorienting how they use physicians versus physician extenders, reducing costs and improving population health management, and then, of course, also the interoperability of data and systems. To be the great partner, to be the person with the seat at the table, we have to have those same strategies and metrics and shared goals in mind. You know, you mentioned this, and it is important, I think, as we approach healthcare providers to understand the objectives, the incentives that are driving them to make decisions, that are driving their practices from the business perspective, as well as when we engage with payers and, you know, what's important to them. We have all this information, all this data that's out there. We have the ability to do more predictive type assessments. And with that in mind, as we engage with physicians in this quick evolving set of healthcare in the industry that we're in today, it's how do we harness that and how do we take the insights from that to be able to help the physician make clinically the decision that really hits all those objectives, incentives, quality of healthcare, satisfaction. And the great thing is, it's all around us. There are examples outside of our industry that we're already doing that and the, the ability for us to be able to harness that and to put that into something that helps to drive our promotional mix, I guess, in an integrated fashion, I would say, but also helps from a personal standpoint, since I deal many times with the customer engagement side of the business, you know, how do we drive our people to have that higher level of engagement, that that savvy that they need to be able to, when they talk to healthcare providers or administrators or payers, the different stakeholders within this, how are they taking that same clinical message but tailoring it in a way that aligns to the needs of those customers that they're with at that point? Brian, you mentioned that other industries already do this well. It's something that we port over essentially to pharma. What other industries? What are you thinking of when you say that? Amazon is a great example. Google, another great example, where they're able to take this metadata and take the information that is there and almost provide a predictive response that is tailored to or somewhat tailored to the individual on the other end. Those are industries that we can learn from because in our industry, we've operated in a model around the clinical aspects of the product itself. It was more about efficacy and safety. And then cost started to climb into that. And we take the same message 
to many times across all of healthcare. And what we need to be able to do is when we walk into one physician versus another healthcare provider versus a healthcare administrator, be able to take the core elements of what the therapeutic entity that we have, but be able to tailor it in a way that is able to align to what's important to them to align to what is going to impact what they're being measured on, to align to really the objectives that are important to them but also have the best outcomes for the patient. What you're talking about, Brian, is what talent looks like in 2019. And we go into that in detail on a trend called the new top talent. In fact, one particular part of it is called high-tech, high-touch. The high-demand talent today is expected to be able to access, translate, and take action on data in one moment, and then step away from that and have a consultative, powerful conversation with a critical stakeholder the next, all while maintaining all that operational excellence and efficiency that we expect. And you see it come to life so clearly on the front lines with the sales reps, but those expectations are actually the exact same ones that are changing what we are looking for in the marketing suite, as clinical site managers, as clinical educators, the powerful pivot that our industry is making right now. Do we have to have that as one person being able to do that? Does it really have to be, say, the sales rep or an account manager being able to do that? Or can we have someone in the back office figuring out how to approach these different groups or have a different message for a different group or a different metric that matters for this group and then informing a sales rep so that they're more targeted there? Do we have to be smart as an organization or do we have to be smart as individuals? Oh, that's a great question because I see it as both. Let's just focus on the customer engagement, say the sales professional. This is going to be very broadly generalized here. You know, it was almost like we were spreading peanut butter evenly across the bread so that every part got the same amount. And that approach was simple. That approach was safe. We were able to measure it with very simple performance indicators around calls per day, reach, frequency, message delivery, and we were able to control that. In today's industry, there's such evolution around what type of products are coming to market. For example, you may have some products that companies are looking at for longer life cycles. There, you may not need the savvy sales professional. You need somebody to be able to provide service. And there may be certain markets that you want to deploy in, not every single market, those markets that you can still be profitable and still have the opportunity to make impact. But as you see this industry change where more and more companies are moving towards rare disease, towards oncology, towards specialized therapeutics, where they are bringing newer therapies, higher science type therapies to market, the types of representatives you're going to need to have may be very specialized. They need to be able to talk to different stakeholders, the high degree of fluency and a high degree of savvy. And so, yes, you do need to have those that are savvy, but you also need to be able to give them the tools. And that's something that we can't leave behind is that you have to have the right systems, the right analytics. You need to be able to fuel this with the right insights that are aligned predictively to that provider or that administrator that they're going to be in front of. I don't think they can be separate because, yes, you're going to hire different profile representatives, those that have the tech savvy, that have the business acumen, that understand that every scenario is not going to be the same as delivering a message like we used to 10, 15 years ago. They need to be able to take that information, use the systems, use the technology, understand everything that may be influencing that ultimate decision maker and make the right decision, as Leah had pointed out, when they are in front of that individual. It's definitely a sliding scale. 
Not everyone has to be able to decode the data, but everyone needs to understand how to make data-driven decisions in this new economy. Yes. Or if you think about the strategy aspect, not everyone has to understand the complexity of, say, a risk-based contract. But everyone does have to understand the importance of real-world evidence in our changing healthcare environment. When you think about the sales force particularly, I do think that you're seeing a lot of those trade-offs that Brian's mentioning. The teams today look really different than they did in the past. Where you might have once have had a sales representative in an MSL, you now actually surround those people with field reimbursement specialists who are able to navigate the systems, with contact centers who can be a triage point for critical challenges, with clinical educators who really bring the how-to of very specialized drugs to both the office and the patient. So you are starting to see that integrated team with back-end operations support and a lot of regionalization being able to trade off tasks in order to have the ultimate impact for the client or customer. You know, and that's such a great point, Leah, because if you start to take that up the chain then, we're also looking at a change in those in a leadership position because it's not just about hiring the right amount of representatives for the marketplace and doling out the same amount of resources. These are people that are going to have to make decisions. They're going to have to look at the business and know when and where to deploy and what resources need to go to where. And it's not about, like you said, deploying just a field force, but making trade-off decisions with those reimbursement specialists, clinical educators, account management or IDN type specialists and, and things like that. So as you look at it, one of the changes you're going to see from an industry perspective is, yes, there will be, I think, an evolution in the type of capabilities, the type of competencies that we look for from a sales personnel as well as a leadership. But you're also going to see, in my mind, an investment in that continuous development and in training to really reinforce the new capabilities that we need to have that we've missed. And I think we're going to see more of that and the companies are going to have the ability to do that because we're not seeing a rapid growth in deployment at headcount. I think it's going to stay fairly flat in my mind over the next couple years because we're not deploying larger teams. We're deploying more specialized teams. But now you're going to have the opportunity to continue to invest in them to make sure they have a high degree of proficiency in this industry. Kind of drawing some of this back together, if we think of healthcare professionals as having less satisfaction with their job, they're being burned out more readily, or at least at a high percentage, and a high percentage report some mental health concerns, depression, that may be driven in part by their lack, relatively, of decision-making where their controls are now being handed over to someone else, their hospital system that they now are in instead of a single practice, or the protocol set that they're handed and that they're required to follow, or the insurance company that forces them to use drug A versus drug B. With that lack of decision-making, it sounds like there's a shift in how we think about how we approach healthcare professionals. In the past, if they made all the decisions and they had a wide range of flexibility for what they could do, then the traditional sales force, to put it Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glenn Ross, always be closing and coffee's only for closers, that sort of sales rep may have been more appropriate for someone who could make big decisions. But now when they can't, and they're put into more of a data-driven decision-making format, then we have to approach them differently with data, with the things that they need and understand the decision-making that they have. Is that what we're talking about now that we have more like Revenge of the Nerds than Gary Glenn Ross with our sales force and our commercialization efforts when it comes to healthcare professionals? 
<laughs> I I, uh, I love the analogy, and I still believe coffee is for closers. I'm, I'm just kidding. The first, the art of closing will never go away, and most likely we'll redefine what a close sounds like. But I think the thing we have to keep in mind, and you mentioned this, is that data and technology are driving better decisions. And that includes in healthcare, you talk about order sets, you talk about protocols, you talk about guidelines that are out there. There are so many different things that the healthcare provider, the payer, the healthcare administrator, when you talk about all these stakeholders, need to consider as they look at trying to find really the best outcome, the most cost-effective outcome for that patient. So how does that shift for our sales representatives? You know, will they be closing? Yes, they will be closing. But the close may sound a little bit differently. You know, first and foremost, we need to take that data and technology and make sure that our sales professionals have the appropriate insights so that when they engage with the different stakeholders within healthcare, including the payers and the providers, that they're delivering the most appropriate information. They're going to need to understand the protocols. They're going to need to understand the guidelines, the order sets, and they're going to need to understand where does their product fit within there because in the end, the close is going to be really around where does this therapy fit, who is the most appropriate patient, and how do we ensure that they have access for that. And that's where, as we talked about earlier, there are different roles emerging, such as the reimbursement specialist. There may be an opportunity that a physician states, this is the appropriate therapy. I believe it is the right therapy. It may not be the current protocol for this patient, or there may be a step edit. I need assistance in helping this patient get this type of product. So in the end, are they going to close? Yes, they're going to close. It may not be the hard close that for every patient that you see with this, will you use this product, which I'm being facetious, but it's going to be more about, again, asking the physician, do they have patients where this product may be appropriate and what do we need to do to help those patients move forward? Our reps, anybody that engages with the healthcare provider, they're going to really need to have the right resources and tools so that when they walk in there, that conversation is meaningful because, like you said, it's not just about the therapy, but it's where the therapy fits within the guidance, within the protocols, within what the payer is saying, and that appropriate patient, how do we move that patient to being able to get the right access to that therapy? It's a new challenge that physicians have today. You know, the question that they used to ask is, how do I get my patient on any therapy? How do I just get them to start something? And now the big hurdle is, how do you get your most motivated patients on the right treatment? How do you get through the complexity of science and systems to be able to get that meaningful access? So as part of the shift that you're talking about, Brian, we're just we're also seeing a lot of field teams moving their primary mindset from selling an asset to educating on a process so that clinical differentiation is absolutely in there, but a lot more in-person time than in the past is now spent on patient and practice support. How do I help you get through reimbursement? How do I help you with patient education? How do I make sure there's someone over video or in person who's going to help educate your patient to get them a first great successful start on the project and the resilience and information to be able to successfully carry forward? Yeah. And I think this is going to carry all the way back to the molecule stage where they're actually looking at moving them into clinical research and defining what really are the endpoints and the outputs that we need to look for. Because if healthcare is looking beyond just 
an efficacy statement and a safety statement to really looking at outcomes, for example, within hospitals, reducing readmission rates, looking at reducing length of stay, looking at reducing infections. Well, the therapies that are coming out in the future are going to have to show that not only, you know, are this efficacious for these patients, but it also is going to reduce readmission by this percentage. The whole industry, not just from a commercial standpoint, is really looking at what type of measures are important because, as you mentioned, protocols, guidelines, order sets, those are all driven by data. That is driven by what is the best data that we have out there that shows the best outcome for those patients. We don't have the time in today's episode to go through all of the top trends for the commercial side, but one other one seems crucially important and something I'd like to talk about if we have time, and that's on launch, on rewiring launch. I'll put in my two cents right at the beginning. The one thing that we see on the uh, consulting side of the business that's a big driver for how launches are different now from how they've been different, say, five years ago or four years ago was the new-to-market lock where insurance companies, especially the very largest ones, just don't give you coverage for the first year of launch. And so launch looks very, very different now from what it looked like even a few years ago. But what else do we know from rewiring launch? It's a great point. I think the first year is actually one of the big drivers behind the conservativeness that's now happening on launch. I'll tell you, there are a couple of other dynamics we're watching too. One is a new patent cliff is looming. Between 2018 and 2025, we think that branded drugs worth over $250 billion in sales are going to see their patents expire. We've got a huge pipeline. I think there's 7,000 things in the pipeline right now, a significant portion of which are expected to be first in category. The science is more complex. That's challenging every stakeholder, whether you're talking about a value stakeholder or clinical. And then the economics are, of course, more complex, too, as we try to figure out the value puzzle. So when I think about launch this year, we're actually predicting that the risk-reward balance is going to change a little bit in the favor of reward. Let me talk a little bit more about that. We've all seen or talked about the odds of being able to get a drug developed, approved, and then ultimately reaching commercial success. To get the whole way through that funnel, it's only about 3%. That's not 3% of all drugs. That's 3% of all drugs tried in a human being. That's after we've gone through whatever crazy number of screens that we've gone through for development and research. This is at, quote unquote, the end when we've left the lab. Right. So the true number is even smaller. So you'd think when you get one of those incredible moments where you're able to launch, maximizing the potential of that would be the number one imperative. But instead, in recent years, the potential of success has taken a backseat to managing the possibility of primarily financial risk. We think that that risk-reward balance is going to start to shift in 2019 with more focus on preparing markets to meet their potential. Actually, Jeff, your team recently did some research to show the other side of the financial equation here. In short, the consulting team compared the investments of 19 biopharmaceutical companies that were launching their first products. They found that companies that spent a minimum of 75% of their launch year forecasted revenue a year before launch had higher rates of launch success. And even more importantly, not a single company that spent less than 75% of their launch year forecasted revenue in that year before launch achieved a successful launch. There are a lot of drivers in that. We launch a lot of oncology drugs, and as I've talked to those teams, by not spending that money, our clients are underinvesting and preparing the market, and our commercial teams are running headlong into organizations that don't understand the unmet need, 
don't necessarily understand the disease state or its concomitant conditions, and certainly aren't ready for the new cost, the new story, the new possibilities of the drug. So I think that's where we're going to start to watch our industry relearn launch to take a very purposeful investment in order to get a very clear return. So that one you mentioned was episode 22 of this podcast with Sachin Perwar, Spending for Launch Success. What do you see, Brian, for launch? I think it's an evolutionary change. The industry, the companies that are able to make this change, I think it's very rich with possibilities for them. You know, you mentioned earlier, Jeff, that the payer as a stakeholder has really impacted many of the products that have come to market, and it has shifted the way the industry is looking at what therapies. Many of the therapies that are going to hit are going to be more scientifically complex. Economically, they're going to be very complex because they have to become that. They have to have the right story, the right value proposition. When we go to markets, one of the things that excites me the most is how we approach that. Are we prepping the market from a medical standpoint? As we look at launching it from a commercial standpoint, are we looking at it from a subnational? Are we making trade-off decisions that we are deploying resources where we know we can win or have the greatest opportunity to be able to win and make impact? And then as that opportunity continues to evolve, as you mentioned, after that first year when some of the payer changes and the evolution changes for them where they're able to cover the product more, are we able to have the agility and the speed to take advantage of that? So industry, when you look at companies today where they have a model they've run, they many times are very slow to act because of maybe the process or the bureaucracy that may be in place, they're going to have to develop a much more agile and flexible deployment. One area that I think we have great opportunity growth with Cineos Health on the selling solution side is that we have that ability to be able to deploy in a subnational approach. We have that ability to scale where we need or scale back where we may not need to be at certain times. So there has to be this mindset that agility is important, that speed is important. And when we get ready to launch, companies have to look at it with a different lens. That idea of a subnational launch, that's one that we've talked about, I think, for and implemented for several years, where we talk about local market strategies, where we look at the combination of where the different hospital groups are and, and influencers are, whether they have power or they don't, which payers are servicing the patients in an area, what's on formulary, what's off formulary, and then what sorts of decision-making the, the healthcare providers have within an area. There are places that are no-fly zones for effective engagement or at least very light touch simply because people can't make decisions that would be in the favor of whatever the sales force might be or the communications effort might be. Other places that are rich places to go in and say that these are the places where we should promote early and other places we shouldn't promote maybe at all. Is that what you're seeing where we're targeting very specifically and that's the sales force of the future for 2019 and beyond? Yes, I'm seeing it more often. I'm hearing it a lot more often. And I think, Jeff, it goes back to a conversation we had just a little bit earlier today, and that is around the capabilities that we are hiring today for the field, especially when it comes to field leadership, where they're able to make those smarter decisions, where they're able to make those trade-off decisions that they may not deploy within a certain regional location or a subnational location, a field sales force. They may be actually deploying more of a clinical sales force to really build understanding around more of the disease state and where this therapy may fit. And then over time, 
the deployment may change more towards the Salesforce itself with those markets. So, you know, answer your question, yes, there is a high level of energy around that. And I think it's really going to shape the way this industry goes forward. I mean, the, the question is, are we going to see people engaging with healthcare providers and different stakeholders in the future? And the answer there is yes. Who was deployed is going to look differently. The skill sets, the capabilities, requirements are going to be different. It's going to, as I mentioned earlier, need to be very integrated because I think it was last year or two years ago that there were actually more digital touch points or non-personal touch points with healthcare providers than there were personal touch points. So how do we make sure that they're working in the same way and that the sales professional or the account manager or the reimbursement specialist or the clinical specialist, whoever is in front of that client, is able to bring really much more of an integrated, synergistic type approach and make sure that everything is heading in the same direction. Leah, you get the final word. Well, one last thing that we are watching in 2019 in the entire commercial suite is a possible fight for the M and CMO. So everyone listening to this knows that those leadership roles in commercial have traditionally been a chief marketing officer. But as all this industry decision-making that Brian and Jeff and I have been talking about moves from clinical differentiation to value differentiation, there could be a reason to have a different pedigree in that seat. So watch for CMOs to potentially be coming from managed markets or medical and really changing up what leadership and strategic vision looks like in the commercial fleet. I don't want to say head blown, but my head is a little bit blown thinking about how things could change with that. Brian DeStefano, Leah Householder, thank you for being on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, enjoyed it, Jeff. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk to a particular challenge that you have at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com. We're consultants. That's what we do.